Hi everyone, this is Terry Anderson with Digging Through Dominoes. And if you've been here before, you know this podcast is all about digging through those dominoes of our past that were laid out for us by others and figuring out the moves we can make for a better, brighter future. I wanted to take this tiny second before the video to let you know this is episode number 33 and it's a very special one. It is my first episode with a guest. Hey everyone, this is Terry. Welcome back to Digging Through Dominoes. I have a fantastic guest for you today. I have known this gentleman for, how long have I known you? This is Jeff Woodward, by the way, everyone. It's been a while. Years, yeah, at least five years, I think. Yeah. And I got in touch with a group, a Facebook group that he runs, which is, it's PDX Homeless. Is that the right? It's called um, Portland Homeless. Is that how? Yeah, Portland Homeless. Portland Facebook. Homeless. Yeah, okay. It's Portland yeah. Homeless in Facebook. And you're the manager and the administrator of that for, what, seven years? Yep. Oh, I was just going to say, I was going to... Um, say what you do for a living, and then I thought I'm going to toss that to you because I'm going to. It's a it's a mouthful, and I'm going to stumble over my words. So, you are from what is your what do you yes, do? So yeah, I am the program manager for the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon's. Um, it's called the Evolve um, Outreach Team, and that's a big fancy term for saying I manage a team of people that do direct support um, on the streets of Portland, um, serving those on our streets in the 800 camps um, in Portland. 800 camps. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and they're and you know, about a million pounds of trash a month. And that's the, oh my goodness. the I, what's called impact reduction program or team or the sweeps, right? And when you say impact reduction, a lot of people don't know what that means. What exactly does that mean to you? Yeah, so it's it's basically um, every every camp that is reported on in Portland is reported on what's called a, a single point of contact. It's it's a phone number, and when as camps get more and more complaints, assessments um, or eyebrows or attention starts getting focused on these areas of concern and then what will happen is um, we'll do an evaluation of the area and determine if whether or not you know there's like a biohazard um, you know all all the things that you know would be of concern to our you know to to others um, around yeah yeah right all this stuff you would expect so yeah and so um it's basically you know and so they get a score and you know all these different criteria you know, um, equal a certain amount. And then based on the score, um, the worst possible is 100. Um, but typically anything from a 60 or 70 and above um, would perhaps be scheduled to be swept. But again, it, it, it varies mm. and depends greatly on, you know, the severity of the location and the impact of the community and the environment and, you know, the public at large too. Um, and so we there's a right. ton of stuff that, is taken into consideration, none of which I am, I do not do any of that. Um, that is the city, but um, 
the reason I mention all that is to let you know that part of what we do every week is um, we have a meeting with the city and we talk about the areas that are um, going to be posted to be swept. And what our team does is we go mm -hmm. in before the sweeps happen and we offer services and we offer peer support and um, shelter, um, whatever we can, frankly. Um, we, we try to prepare them um, for what's coming and offer any, any assistance we can. Help them relocate, yeah. so to speak. That is something when I spoke with you before that really had been on my mind a lot because especially when my son was alive and I would go downtown and everything had been swept. I had no idea that the people in these camps had been notified before. And I was furious because it's like, where do they go? Do they not, do they just, you know, one day somebody comes in and just takes everything and they're left in this, they're already in a horrible state. So when you told me that they're notified, that was, that was for me, for a mom that's experienced that with my son, that was comforting to know that he just wasn't being tossed again. It's, it's really hard to know sometimes because the perception is, is that um, if, if you ask most people on the street, they'll say they were given no notice, but, but they are, they are posted. Yeah. Um, typically it's 72 hours, but sometimes it's weeks from a post from the time a posting happens to the time that they're actually removed. Um, so um, mm -hmm. I, I will say, and it's probably not a popular opinion, but um, I have seen nothing but kindness and grace from the city in terms of um, how they have treated the peers on the street in terms of you know working with the people when, when they're dealing with these really, really tough situations. I have always observed great kindness and respect. Uh, so they have yeah. an impossible, impossible, horrible job. But I can't I can't even begin to imagine here I was dealing with one child and I felt like I was fighting the city and the state and everything. And here they're tasked with not only protecting citizens that aren't in that situation, but also protecting those that are in the situation from themselves and from everyone else. And how did, how did you get involved with this outreach? What, what was your burning passion? How did you yeah, end up working? So, so um, in March of 2009, I lost my wife tragically to suicide, and that set off kind of a course of events. And um, frankly, I really just wanted to be with her. Um, so my goal was to, um, you know, join her in any way possible. And I thought the best way I could do that would be death of a thousand cuts on the streets of Portland. And so, um, yeah, wow. I was on this, the streets of Portland for, for several years. And I, I saw, and let me back up. Before that, I, I was in corporate in the corporate world. I was a systems technologist and system administrator for Fortune 500 companies. Um, you know, they had a ton of money in the bank. When I lost my wife, it didn't matter. I didn't care. I did not care. Right. I walked away from a home that I owned and a ton of money in the bank, and I didn't care. I just, I just wanted to be with her. It turns your life upside down. Yeah, and it, and it hits you. It, the, you know, and suicide. I mean, death 
but suicide is kind of like the way I've described it. It's like a bomb going off and everyone, all their loved ones and family members around them, right. As the shock wave goes out, they're all impacted. And, and, and that's, that's really what suicide is. I mean, the loss of a loved one, it's, you can't even fathom that, but to, to see it and its immediacy is just, um, really shocking and and unfortunately or fortunately i don't know but i was actually the one to to discover her where she had where she had taken her life so it was it was quite hard one thing i can say on a personal level at least for myself before when i was in that mode that suicidal ideation or the i've got a plan mode you can't see out of that tunnel. So you're not, at least in my situation, I wasn't, I don't think I had the capability of realizing what I would be impacting had I gone through with what I was going to do. And so, you know, so many people say, well, it's, it's really a selfish act, but you don't, they don't understand. If you're in that situation, you can't see beyond that. You're, it's a tunnel vision. Did you, do you think that that was something your wife was dealing with? You know, it's interesting that you say that, Terry, and I really appreciate that because some of the, the toughest things for me immediately after her loss was like, for example, at the funeral that I was told I should not attend just for the sake of my mental health or whatever. But anyway, I felt like I should be there. And people coming up to me and shaking my hand or greeting me and hugging me and saying, I know how you feel. You know, no, you don't. You didn't just find your wife hanging in your garage dead, you know, so don't tell me about how you feel, right? Um, so I, I really get what you're saying. And I know, I know my wife well enough to know that the reason in her mind that she did it was because she was doing everyone a big favor. That was one of the reasons in my mind. It was my family would be better off without me. And the enormous pain that I was in at that time, I felt like I was breaking apart and tainting everything and everyone around me and the thing i mean well, the thing that saved me i don't think i told you this i was i was ready i was making a bath i had everything ready i had all my medications out and there was a knock at the door the bathroom door and i opened it up and my Oldest grandson was there with a handful of lavender that he had picked for my bath. That is the only reason I'm still here. Wow. For, for some reason, that gesture that Jacob of Jacob's was able to penetrate what nothing else had been able to penetrate. You, and yeah, you know, people don't know. And it's, they generally from people that I've spoken through that or two that have come through on the other side, they said, I thought I was doing the best thing for everyone. Yep. Yep. I'm tired of being a burden, you know? Yeah. And, 
and I heard it too so many times, Terry, you know, that's the most selfish thing a person can do. It's the most selfish thing. And, and I don't, I think that the people say that, that are saying that. Um, so Keanu Reeves was asked a question and the question he was asked was, what do you, well, what do you think will happen to you after you die? And he said, well, I think the people that love me will be sad and miss me. And so yes. when people, when someone dies, right, the people are sad and they miss them. Mm-hmm. And so they're angry and they like to blame something or someone. And so um, I think it's very normal. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't see it really as selfish. And again, I think she did it because she really thought she was doing our, our nine-year-old daughter and, and me who had been her husband for 12 years and her beautiful loving family and everyone else a big favor because in her head, she was just not worthy. And that's the fucked upness of it. And I, you had not told me about that, Terry, and I appreciate you sharing that. That's, um, so the, (laughs) when I was homeless and trying to like meet my goal, you know, I had several attempts too. And (laughs) I learned, (laughs) you really learn some interesting things about yourself when you're trying to take your own life. And (laughs) I learned that I'm just not good at it. And I'm kind of glad about that. And you just go through these things and it just, it it really gets crazy. And um, I think your head is being pulled in so many different directions and it does feel so fucking hopeless. Yes. Um, It's so surreal. And it, I don't know if you felt this way, but it, it, it's, it was for me, it was like, I was watching this play. I was a participant, but I was also observing what was happening and I had no control over what was going on. So that is, I I have heard of that before. And um, in fact, immediately after I lost my wife, I felt like I was having a similar experience to what you just described. I felt like I was floating above myself looking down. It was so bizarre. It was the closest thing to an out-of-body experience I've ever had. And I don't know if it was the grief or what or just exhaustion, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I I couldn't literally even, like, pick up a pen to write my name on a death certificate or something, but. Wow. Are you, I'm not, I don't have an image. Are you with us? Yeah. There? I'm here. I see you. Okay. So earlier, Terry, you froze. What was that? Earlier, you froze for about 10 seconds. Oh, did I? Okay. So all I, there you are. Now you're back. Okay. Yeah, the latency. This That's what the happened great to thing you about this, this platform that I'm using, it just what? goes up to the cloud, and when I download it, there won't be any latency or anything. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so your wife's suicide is really what's spiral since yeah. you on the path. Yeah. Of- so I was on the streets, and um, like I said, I came from kind of a professional corporate background, and so. In that mindset, I was like, I need to fix homelessness. And so I started looking at the systems of care in our community and the status quo and how it's dysfunctional. And um, 
I learned about a facility called Wapato, which um, is in North Portland and was built back in 2005 at a cost of, I think, $65 million. And that was taxpayer funded at a time when measure, a measure was passed. I think it was, I don't remember what the measure was, but it was at a time when the crime rate was expected to go up. And so they built this prison. Mm-hmm. And it's a minimum security facility on 18 acres. It's 155,000 square feet. And it's been sitting empty um, since 2005 in mothballs at a cost of about two hundred and fifty to $500,000 a year to keep in mothballs, just to keep in mothballs. Uh, and again, that's taxpayer right. funded money, right? So um, I learned of this facility in my ramblings and wanderings and ended up... <laughs> I've never shared this with anyone, but I, I actually got into the facility and, and stayed there um, and started figuring out how it could be used for Portland's homeless and the dorms wow. and, and everything else. So, um, yeah, and so I started advocating. I, I ended up landing at City Team. Um, I was, it was, I think, about... 25 months of homelessness. It was, it was freezing cold. I was actually really close to probably dying. Um, literally fell in the door at city team. And three days later I woke up and um, the manager of city team's face was right above me. And I said, are you God? And he said, no, but you're in heaven. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. So nine months later I walked out. And um, had my life restored. And I started advocating for the use of Wapato, which is now the Bayview Lake Soap Center. And what does the future of that look like? Because yeah, is so, there any movement on that? Well, it opened. It opened in October of 21. And I was the facility director um, for 18 months. And um what ended up happening, unfortunately, is that after, I think it was about a year of me um, managing the facility, um, I started realizing that the, the that Helping Hands, who is the parent nonprofit above Bybee Lakes, um, and their mm-hmm. CEO, Alan Evans, and I really had some different ideas around tr- what is trauma-informed care and what is really in the best interest of those people that we're serving. And so um, in, in 12 months, um, I had to exit 500 people from our facility. Wow. And so when you have to do that so many times, it's, it starts having an impact on you. And it's, it, it's like things need to change, right? Maybe we shouldn't be mm-hmm. um, such extremely high barrier. You know, maybe we should give people a chance to get clean from THC you know, maybe we should allow mm-hmm. people's mental health medications on the facility premises, you know, things like that, that I started pushing back on. And um, I was called into Alan's office and told I was no longer a good fit. And so after almost 10 years of advocating for that facility, and uh, I spent my life fortune at that point um, on doing that because I was basically doing that full time for so many years. Um, so that was really heartbreaking. Um, and it's, it's still open. Uh, the, it's being, um, it's being managed. Um, the facility director now is someone I hired. Um, 
that is not a peer, has not been homeless. Um, mm -hmm. and so that's kind of where things stand. That, you know, something you said really struck me. And you said the high barrier in Oregon. For me, I found it to be an impossible barrier in Oregon in trying to help my son. Is that what you were speaking of? That the high barrier of, well, of being so, involuntarily so committed or? Both. Um, so most shelters, well, in fact, well, so TPI runs the shelter system and the public shelters that are publicly funded through the joint office, those are what are called low barrier shelters. And so you, they don't require mm -hmm. a UA, a clean UA. They don't, they don't like go through your bags. Basically anyone can walk okay. in. Um, whereas right. at Bayou Lakes, um, after four days of shelter, if you want to go into the long-term reentry program, you have to provide a clean UA, um, and you have to start paying program fees, um, which are oh, know, okay. two or three hundred, two or three hundred bucks a month. But that it goes from shelter at that level, four days, right, to then what's called a reentry program, and there are other facilities or other programs like Union Gospel, that's a that's a shelter and reentry. Portland Rescue, that's also shelter and reentry. City Team, shelter and reentry. Um, but those are all religious-based. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though um, Helping Hands or Alan or Bybee would say they're not religious-based, um, they're, they're religious-based. Um, mm -hmm. So having said that, in order to get a lot of the funding that is required, um, funders say, well, we'll give you a million dollars, but you have to have people have a clean UA. We're not going to support drug addicts or whatever, right? Um, and so they, right. you know, you kind of have to get in bed with the devil if, if you want money, you want to serve people, but yet the people that give you the money are telling you how to serve people, but you're the expert. But in order to serve people, you need the money. <laughs> right, right. It's a never-ending loop of insanity. I, I don't know how, oh, I didn't realize all of that. I mean, you know what, Joshua, I, I was really struck when I was, did that town hall for um, COIN with, they were so focused on addiction, but they weren't really willing, and I don't mean COIN, I mean the people in, in on the on the panel, they weren't really willing to focus on mental health, which in my opinion, okay, my son's addiction came from his mental health issues, trying to self-medicate. Right. So how can you expect someone, I mean, it's going to take time. It seems like it's going to take some time for people to be able to get off of that. Not, what did you say? Four days? Well, that's just it. And so now with fentanyl, um, even a year ago um, or 15 months or so ago, things were very different than they are today with, with I don't know yes. what your listeners know, but the, the, there's a new drug on the market on the street. It's called fentanyl and they're little tiny round blue pills. And they're like 10,000 times more powerful than the strongest heroin. And I don't know if that's, you know, technically accurate, but basically a couple of micro doses of this drug is enough to, have you overdose. And so, right. um, and, and these pills are getting cut with, 
with different stuff like horse tranquilizer in an attempt to make the effects of the fentanyl last longer because the people love the fentanyl, but the high goes away within just a couple of minutes. And so you're constantly hitting the foil. And um, so labs and the cartels and everyone else are trying to extend that high by, like I said, adding pork horse tranquilizer and some other stuff in there. And so what that's doing now to the people is it's causing these horrible, disgusting sores that are oozing pus from people's limbs. Um, the people's bodies are literally rotting from the inside out. And we, we see the these. Wounds. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we see these wounds in the camps every day. I mean, we're, we're doing more wound care than we were even six months ago because people are like coming up to mm -hmm. us and going, can you help me with this? You know? And yeah. You so know, that makes just so much sense, doesn't it? Let's make this drug that's going to kill our clients in a way I had a woman, I, I, I won't say who she was, but she's like, Terry, it seems like they're being, the homeless are being targeted. And then there was this other school of thought to where they're just trying to get more people addicted because they know there's like this very short um, life expectancy for the users of these drugs. So they're bringing new people in, trying to, you know, do their outreach do you see yeah. that at all? What's your opinion on any of that? I don't think they care who buys their drugs as long as they're sold. Um, but right. having said that, the the you know there's so much of it out there that I mean you you can get a pill now for two or three dollars, and um, so I think I think at a really high level that um, like we saw we're seeing Walmart close their stores right. And other stores in Portland right. are also having to shutter. The Nike store on MLK had to close because of theft. Um, you know, Cracker Barrel and Jansen Beach had to close because of theft. Um, all these stores are seeing the impact of fentanyl and people having to come up with quick cash. So they're going into Lowe's, they're grabbing, grabbing a skill saw, and they're going to the pawn shop. They're getting cash, and they're going to their dealer. And so if you multiply that five or 10,000 times a day, you can see why stores are closing, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, when it took me, my, well, probably close to a year to get Joshua's toxicology back. And I was surprised. I was almost certain that they would find fentanyl, but there was no fentanyl in his tox screen. Um, and what he, but what he did have, this is something that gets me too, is Measure 110. And for people that don't know Measure 110 in Oregon, it decriminalizes, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, um, decriminalizes personal use of hard drugs. That's true. Is that? Yes. yes. At, At a high level, yeah. So. Personal use. Yeah. In Joshua's, I'm sorry. I just was reiterating. Yes. For personal use. For personal use, but someone had said something to me. It was a co-petitioner for Measure 110. And they seemed very proud of that, that it was for personal use only, but they didn't 
they didn't decriminalize um, dealers or, you know, I'm going to get lost here because when this person said that, I'm looking at him and I, I know my son's, what was in my son's reports, everything he had would have been considered personal use. And now we have my son behind me where I know he's warm, he's safe, and he's not doing whatever the heck he had to do to get the drugs that he got. So then the question becomes, and I don't mean this to sound as harsh and cold as it's going to, would that have happened if 110 hadn't happened? And and that's the question I think that a lot of parents, I mean, I my son is your very similar situation to your son and he's alive on the streets of Portland. And so um, what you just showed me behind you is what I fear mm-hmm. of every day. Right. And I'm always waiting for the call, yeah. always waiting for the call. Yeah. And so, but then I know that when I was homeless, I was so fucking strange because I actually didn't use drugs. I, I've never been a big time drug wow. user. I've never even been much of a drinker. Never. I've never been into right. it. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Anyway, um, but I saw when I was homeless the need for self-medication. And I it, it's very understandable. But but then it was, um, right. of course, meth and a ton of heroin. But now it's so mm-hmm. much easier. I mean, my God, like I said, it's just a couple dollars. And you can get one of these pills. And, you know, it's just so attractive to people that are lost in the abyss of hopelessness. There is no fucking tomorrow. So why do I give a shit about getting fucked up tonight? You know, we'll see what happens tomorrow. But tonight I'm going to feel good. And I don't I deserve it. You know, and it's hard for people that have never been homeless before to get their head around what it feels to have no hope. Um, the most dangerous person to themselves, I think, is when they're in that headspace, when they have no hope and because they've lost any reason to live. And so, um, yeah, that was like me. I, I didn't care. I just wanted to be dead. Right, right. And that's trauma. I, I think that's, I... That is trauma. That's huge trauma that isn't being addressed. And I think I spoke to you about this with Joshua. And I was going somewhere and sorry, rabbit trail. So, no, it's cool. so, so um, listen, going back to 110, right? Yeah. So 110 decriminalized personal use. Here's the thing, right. though, Terry. 110 was also supposed to fund substance use disorder and mental health treatment and care facilities. It hasn't. All we have is Hooper and Unity. We have forward a high level for private pay, sometimes public pay. Anyway, our facilities, I, I say it in my group all the time, we need 10 Unities. We need 10 Hoopers. Otherwise, anything we do around 110, like there's all these, you know, built for zero and housing 100 people and 400 million towards affordable housing and 
And that's all great, but you can't just hand someone a set of keys. That's no, been you can't. Going through the trauma of life on the streets. You mm-hmm. just cannot. I mean, even with wraparound you services, you, you have to give people an opportunity to come in, to get well, to get food, to get clean, to detox from life on the street, detox from the self-medication crap, right? And and then probably go through official detox, right? And so, right. and then let's talk, maybe start talking about what do you want with your life now? Maybe that's not housing. Who knows, right? But there's just a big assumption that everyone on the street wants housing. I think what a lot of the people on the street really want is connection. It's not housing. The opposite I of think addiction. You're right. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. And that's why we have 800 camps of these sub units of cultures where people are supportive of one another and that's all they know because that's all they have because their city has repeatedly let them down so what the fuck else are they supposed they have. to do exactly and you know i found that with when i first started to search for joshua there's a hierarchy out there and they did not trust me at all it took me quite a while before people realized I just wanted my son to know his mom loved him. I wanted him to have food. I wanted to make sure he was okay and that I could help him in any way I could. I had to go through the ranks, through the guards of these people, the hierarchy. They really protect their own. And there is this big sense of community. And it may have been you I was speaking with about about Joshua. Um, yeah, it was. That his... I was thinking that his death was a suicide. Yes. Because of the way that he was found. And when I went through all of the paperwork, it was, I, I, I need to be on SSI because I need to be able to help my mom make her house payment, which is totally unrealistic, but it was the way my son thought. And I think with you talking about your wife and it really hit me with, I think that's how Joshua was feeling. I don't want to be a burden on my mom anymore. And that's why he was found in the doorway of Salvation Army. Yep. That's he nowhere would, he would have slept. He would. He didn't want you to worry about him being lost, right? Right. He wanted to be discovered. He, he did not. He wanted to be discovered. So yeah. you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's. That's kind of what I think, and. How old was he? He was 28. He was 28. Uh, This June will be his 30th, would have been his 30th birthday. And he was getting some case management through TPI. Is that right? (laughs) Uh, If you want to call it that. Um, Do you want to hear about a little bit of my experience with TPI? I would love to. Or is that... (laughs) No, please. I'll share my experience if you share yours. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll share mine because, you know, my whole, this whole journey with Portland and Joshua, it was almost like I felt I was buying a used car. It was bait and switch for 10 years. 
Oh yeah, we can get him some help. Oh yeah, we can get him help. Oh, let's check the boxes off. Joshua, we, and I go back and I watch videos on my YouTube channel. Uh, it's an, under a playlist called Joshua's Journey. And there are so many in there where the, I have this spark of hope that somebody's going to help. Well, I was called the end of August, 2021, a caseworker that Joshua had aged out from said Joshua's laying in the street in Old Town. He can't get up. He really can't talk. The only thing he says is, I want my mom. So I get down there and I don't look like the other people there. Like I'm not driving a car. Yeah. You know, I'm not driving a car that is really seen on the street there that, you know, I'm, I'm driving a Mercedes. Yeah. I'm sitting in the street, well-dressed, talking to a kid that's out of his flipping mind. That's covered in feces. His hair is just a rat's nest. And this car pulls up. There's three people in it. One's, um, there was a worker that I have a feeling he was new. His name was Brian. There were two other people. One he said was regional director. And there was another person and they listened to me. I think the only reason they stopped is because I didn't fit in. And I was speaking to someone that was homeless. I think that's the only reason they stopped my opinion. And they get out and they listened to me for quite a while. And I got a call back from this Brian guy and said, oh my gosh, I did some research on Joshua. He has checked every box that Portland has. He should have been high priority years ago. And he slipped through the cracks. So he says, I'm going to do everything I can. I just went through these these text messages yesterday from from this guy. I'm going to do everything I can to help make sure Josh was taken care of. I'm going to go find him. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Several weeks go by and I message him, have you had a chance to look for Joshua? Oh, I completely forgot about him. I'll go out and look now. Then I was like, okay, you're just like a lot of the other people I've talked to that have given me false hope. In my opinion, you're taking money. When I hear grant a lot of times, I know that there are incredible, passionate nonprofits out there. But I also feel that there are those that are out there taking money and lining their pockets. My personal opinion. And that's the way I felt throughout this journey with Joshua was people were lining their pockets. It's it's like, you're not going to let me take him off the street to be one less kid to burden the taxpayer. Why is that? Are you getting federally funded? Um, I'm a building contractor. What is this homeless fee that I'm paying in my permits? And why have we over-collected the homeless tax and underspent the funding? Is the homeless just a game to Portland? Is it a money game? That's how I feel. And that's how I feel TPI approached my son. And I hold them along with Portland. Um, once again, this is my opinion and my my personal feeling responsible for the death of my son. Yeah, and so that's my experience with TPI. And so you you hit on many things that really resonate, and that is that I've always talked about the fact that homelessness in Portland is an industry and not a cause. Um, the status quo. Oh my gosh! 
the status quo of Portland is that we spend probably, I think, right this year, we're going to spend about $300 million on a problem that gets 20% worse every year. So think about that for a second. $300 million on a problem that gets 20% worse every year. And so right now, right on top, on top of, that's just the capital. Let's talk about the, the people. We're losing two or three people dead on the street every week. So that's the reality for you as a parent, me as a parent. Every person on the street has a mom or a dad, right? And so right. it's the status quo. And and so and TPI is a provider. They're one of the biggest, one of the, 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 the most tenured in Portland. And I think that's good and bad. They've been around so long that they've gotten really comfortable mm -hmm. with their funding streams. They were especially um, yes. well provided by Multnomah County former chair, Deborah Kifori. Um Her mother um, was the founder of the Bud Clark Center, which is part of TPI. So there's some mm -hmm. generational stuff going on in terms of con the, the chair and the joint office and the county. Um, supporting TPI as their provider of shelter beds. And that's kind of TPI's, I, I hate to use the word, the term superpower because they don't do it well or how I think it should be done. But that's really what they do. They provide the shelters in Portland's public spaces. So like if there's a severe weather event, you know, and you mm -hmm. see these shelters that open up, they, they do that, um, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But okay. they, I think they run you know, in that most of the shelters in Portland. Something you said about the homelessness situation in Portland is more of an industry. Yeah, it is, right? I mean, TPI. Well, I was looking through their, their board, their directors, their higher ups. And to me, it seems it's something to put on your resume instead of a passion to help. And so, I can't well, say that for everyone. That's just what I kind of feel. Well, people love to see, you know, board member TPI. I, I think that that probably exists, but I think that there are genuinely good people on the board, but I honestly don't know. I, I don't know. Of them. I'm sure there are. But I, I will say that that's, going back to the status quo thing, it's like, you know, I, the former, um, executive director of TPI I'm trying to remember he 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 made high almost either over or close to $200,000 a year and so in managing a, a nonprofit right that is responsible for saving people's lives on the street and so you have to look at what he's being paid and then his directors below him and then the managers below those directors right and so the funding just becomes this organically self-evolving thing that I think can sometimes become this monster that just kind of eats people up and gets them really, really, really super comfortable in their positions. And I'm sure that the case managers that were working with your son probably wanted to help. And I certainly can't speak for what was going on in terms of the employment <laughs> options 
at right. that time. But I, I know that right now hiring hiring is our number one challenge. And so wow. getting people, getting people, period. Um, second of all, getting people that have the heart for this work. Right. And, and that's kind of my point in telling you this, Terry, is that to answer your question, I think like I, the two case managers I have on my team, I would literally trust with my life. Um, but wow. that's not always the case with people. You have to find, and this would be my recommendation to parents with loved ones on the street, find a case manager at a provider that really honestly actually gives a shit because they're the ones that will go yes. find your person. They will introduce themselves. They won't leave for hours. They'll be impeccable with their word. They'll establish trust. They'll get them into shelter to get them stabilized. And then they can start talking about case management. But most case management, I would say 90% of the case management that happens in Portland is in reach. In other words, people on the street have to come to them, right? Whereas our team, our team, we're outreach. We take our case Mm -hmm. managers to the people and we're like, hey, you want housing? Well, let's do a VISPADAP. You know, so Mm -hmm. that's kind of our superpower and the fact that everyone in our org um, has identified as having lived experience with mental health or homelessness or addiction challenges. So it makes it a really special place. And I think, too, Terry, that that's I just have to say that we were voted the number one nonprofit to work for in Oregon. And it's been several years, but we were just again this last year. And I get it. I understand why we give a fuck and we're impeccable. It's a passion. Yeah, it has to be because if you, if it, if it does, if this work doesn't feed your soul, it, it's like 30 degrees and freezing out and I'm walking in thousand acres delivering tents, you know, right. that ain't fun. But when you're, when it's feeding your soul and you know, and you get it because you were one of them, you mm-hmm. know what it's like to be shiver, shiver right. in the tent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, that was a whole body sort of shiver when you said that, because when Joshua died, you know, having spent a decade going through this and reading through medical reports, things that I really can't go really, I can't, there are certain words I can't get past and read what's further because I don't want to know. But one of the first things I thought when the officers showed up, there were several things that I thought, and I felt kind of weird thinking this, but then again, here I'm, I'm a mom. I've been dealing with this for 10 years. One of the things I thought was, thank God Joshua doesn't have to get, because he died in October, go through another Portland winter and be diagnosed with frozen foot. We're seeing more Thank and more. God. And, and how, how crazy is that as parents, that's what we think when we've learned that our child has passed away on the sidewalk in front of Blanche house. Right. The good news is, is that they're not going right. to suffer horribly this winter. <laughs> it, it, yeah. I, 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 Terry, I get, I get messages um, through Facebook, through my group. From parents and loved ones and partners of people that are all on the streets of Portland, and they beg me for help. And, you know, every one of them is different, but they have reoccurring themes, you know. 
I, it was just what you said, mm-hmm. Terry. You just, I just want to know that they're okay. I just want to know that I want them to know that I love them. You know, I just want them to right. know that if they want to call me, they can. They don't have to, but if they want mm-hmm. to, they, you know, I get messages every day and it's so hard and so heartbreaking. And you run, uh, I've, and I've done this many times. I've helped parents across the country and locating loved ones on the streets mm-hmm. of Portland. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's turned out and other times it's been tragic, tragic. Right. And so, um, it, yeah, the whole system is tragic. You know, I, I keep going back to this thing with, with, with my son and I wonder about other parents. We have the means and you, you do, it sounds to provide shelter and apartment treatment for our kids, but we're not allowed to do that. I would be arrested for kidnapping. Terry, I, me and my position, me and my position, I have more power than any other parent probably of a loved one on the street, right? I mean, I could, if I was able to find my son and if he was interested in these things, I would, I would think I would be able to help him. But as you know, from personal experience, I mean, the last time I talked to him was, I think about 18 or so months ago, and he was reported walking naked down 82nd Avenue at 2 a.m. in the morning. And so oh my gosh, I found him, and um, he suffers um, from schizophrenia. And so it's just, again, we need SUD treatment. We need uh, mental health treatment. We need unities. We have to get people stable. And when people aren't on their medications, what do they do? They self-medicate. And they self-medicate. And I'm telling you, Terry, I was talking to um, one of the other managers from the Central City team that I just think is amazing. His name is Dave Crosby. Anyway, the interaction from, say, someone suffering from schizophrenia and taking a hit of a blue or even something like pot, the way that affects them and and their um, acuteness and um, getting escalated is is severe. Um, and so, I think that a lot of us have all seen people in crisis on the streets, right? And they're walking mm-hmm. down or they're walking in the middle of the street and they're screaming or whatever. That's that's what's going on, you know. So they've they're self medicating and they're in crisis, mental crisis, and they're really in a a different reality. I mean, as far as they know, they're literally walking on the moon and walking in sunshine and yeah. Right. It's a different. Yeah. Reality. You know, it, I have found that my walk with this has changed me in ways I never thought I could change. I I'm, I used to be pretty rigid. I mean, raising eight kids and a lot of foster cares, you had to have very strict, very, <laughs> You're super barriers, you know, guidelines and you try, you know, it's like herding cats, but watching what Joshua went through and a lot of these people that have gone through, they've really given me a completely different outlook, if you will, on my compassion, my um, black and white thinking into seeing that there's so much gray out there. And it's, 
I love that you said that because before I was homeless, I was an engineer and science is very black and white. And so when right. I, became, I was then homeless and then all of a sudden in seeing homelessness, there's nothing more gray than homelessness, nothing yeah. more gray than homelessness. I mean, yeah. Figuratively and literally. Yeah. <laughs> There, there is no, it's so fluid. There is no nice, neat little box that you can put it into. And that's what and all I of miss. the funders want to do. Yes. They want to say, yes. let's focus on BIPOC. Let's focus on youth. And I'm not saying that any of these things are bad or not worthy, but funders tend to focus on specific groups. Like the Built for Zero, I think, is focusing on the elderly population. Great. You know, but mm -hmm. the bottom line is, is that we have, you know, 800 camps and probably, I would estimate, 7,500 or so unsheltered people. Um, and that's not including people in cars. So we need the facilities. I didn't wow. mean to interrupt you earlier, Terry. Go ahead. No, no, that's fine. Um it's just such a mind blow and it, it is such a reality check. I used to be, you know, I used to be one of those people. Me too. Thought until you realize, Hey, you know how many people downtown are not drug addicted. They don't have mental problems. They just choose to be live on the streets. Yeah, I mean that's not a great my majority, but there are those people, and you when you get in there and you see people like you said yourself, you didn't do drugs, you didn't drink, you were just in this space. You wanted to be with your wife. There are all these different spaces, and you cannot put these people in a box. And one thing right. that really gets my goat is how many people caseworkers Joshua had that were good that he aged out of and they could mm -hmm. no longer help him. The, yeah. And then we it's couldn't not, find another case. For him. Yeah. It's very, very common case managers that average turnover is between six and eight months. Think of that. And Gosh. cases aren't passed down. And that goes back to why you have to find somebody, either an employed case manager or someone just that is willing to help you, you know, when someone mm -hmm. is coming in off the street, they need one-on-one -on -one support. And that's really the thing that makes what um, mental health and addiction, what we do different. So again, we all self-identify as peers. So we've been where the people we're serving have been. And so we really try mm -hmm. to shine that light of getting it onto the people we're serving. And so we wrap ourselves around them and, um, you know, we understand that asking someone to walk away from, for example, an area where they've been tenting for 22 years um, and move into a safe mm -hmm. rest village, that's a really big deal. I mean, Terry, if you'd been living in your home for 22 years and I came and talked to you, do you think I could convince you to move into a tiny home? And the size doesn't matter no. of the home. It's your home. A home is a home is a home. It's what you know. It's what it you is. Know. It's a mindset. Yes. And so right. we're asking people... We're asking people to relocate and from what they have put together in their heads of a place of comfort, 
whatever that looks like in its dysfunction, it's what they're doing to fucking survive. And that's all it's about. Right. Well, you know, you said something earlier. And then when I was telling you about Joshua aging away from out of caseworkers that did care for him and then he would get lost. How can you have a feeling of connection if that connection is continually broken? Again, one of the biggest challenges we face is that the mobility and that 90%, probably even higher than that, of the people on the street do not have a cell phone. They don't have access to a cell phone, whatever. They're incommunicado either because they're choosing to be or it's either lost or stolen is what we hear constantly. So. And then you add to that that they're constantly right. moving around and they're constantly being swept. And so here we're being tasked <laughs> to go out onto the street, yes, establish a relationship that is trusting enough that we're going to convince this person that you know we're here to help them in their journey, whatever that may look like. But hopefully, it's going to improve your current situation. And um, it's just, again, this is why housing first, I, in my opinion, it's not going to be popular, but in my opinion, housing first will not work in Portland because we do not mm-hmm. have wraparound services. If we had 10 entities and we had 10 hoopers, then housing first might mm-hmm. work. But you can't just hand, you can't hand my son a set of keys when he's walking naked down 82nd right. Avenue at 2 a.m. And say, oh, there, right. I have you, I'm solving homelessness. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we have in our in our backyard, um, and this is going to sound really weird, but we have this beautiful shed, looks like a house that is fully insulated. It has electricity. It has plumbing to it. Joshua could have lived there. But here's the problem we come into. When you have someone mentally ill, that is addicted, how many people am I then going to have in my backyard shooting up? And that's what I was thinking about. You know, we need Joshua's mental health and he had schizophrenia. So that's a whole different beast. If his mental health was not addressed, we would just be causing a huge problem had we rented him an apartment or let him move in here or a tiny house. You're just asking for more chaos if you don't address the root cause. That's exactly right. And I don't, I, I struggle with understanding um, um, Jessica Vega Peterson, our new chair has um, this goal of housing. What initially was 400 people this calendar year and is now <laughs> down to a hundred people um, at a cost of $4 million. Um, is her goal. And so the idea is that she's going to establish a team that is going to reach out to property managers and basically it'll be guaranteed rent, right? For whoever Mm -hmm. we as outreach teams, you know, bring in. Um, And they would have guaranteed, you know, rent paid for however long, three, six, nine, 12 months. But again, here we go, right? So am I? is my son going to be ready to move into one of these apartments, regardless of having to pay rent? 
It's not about paying right. rent right now. <laughs> it's right, exactly. It's not about paying rent. And that's, that's why I think Oregon's bar for involuntary commitment has to be lowered. Has to. But there are two percent, according to a coin news report, two percent of the people in the in the um, Oregon State Hospital are under involuntary commitment. The rest are being used by the justice system. Yeah. Pre-trial determination of That's sanity. Bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, so I so, I could tell you a story about someone and in and commitment and the involuntary or not. So I'll just I'll I'll call her um um I'll call her my sister's name, Lisa. Um East County, um Sandy River Delta. We were We've been working with her intense engagement for 13 months. Um, mm -hmm. She suffers from acute um, uh, mental instability due to severe trauma, um, personal um, trauma around the loss of some children or some children that she has existing. The soul is just this, when, when she's together in her head, she's the kindest, most beautiful person that I've ever met. But when she's not, um, so for example, I approached her at a camp and she had cut a can of Coke in half and emptied it and put some baked beans in it and put it on her fire at her tent, by her tent, to cook her beans in. And she was holding the can and I could hear her skin sizzling from the heat of the can and she had this huge like 12 inch Bowie knife and she was eating the beans out of the can into her mouth as her skin was sizzling. And so again, is, is this person ready for a set of keys, right? This right. is what we're dealing with on the streets and people need to know this, you know, these people aren't even fucking document ready, Terry. So no. all of these things that, these high level things from people in boardrooms and here's another hundred million Kotec, 400 million, you know, um, Peterson, 4 million. It's just yet 20% more a year right now, two or three deaths a week. I'm just waiting for the next domicile unknown report. I don't know if you know about this, but every year the Multnomah County coroner's office releases what's called the domicile unknown report. And this reports on the number of homeless deaths that occur in Multnomah County every year. And so when I say two or three deaths a week, that's no bullshit. One of the reasons why I was so interested in opening Wapato was because at that point when I opened Wapato, Terry, the number, so the mm -hmm. capacity of Bybee, Wapato, was 525 people. The number of people that had died on the streets of Portland since that domicile unknown report had started happening, 525. So to me, that was about saving lives. Yeah. But so going back to the commitment thing, my God, Terry, we have tried working with Portland Street Response, Portland Street Miss and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office Hope Team, um, Multnomah County Crisis and Mental Health, Behavioral Health, so many different things to try to help her. And 
it all so we got close once we got really close once we got her into an ambulance and um we were hoping that she would be transported to um providence so that then she would go to unity and wouldn't be immediately released they'd been taking her to mount hood and so they got her into an ambulance out in troutdale and we, we told the person she needs to go to Providence because then she's going to go to Unity. Otherwise, she's just going to be released in five minutes from fucking Mount Hood. Right. And so the ambulance driver, AMR, said, no, she doesn't want to go to Providence. She wants to go to Mount Hood. And we have to do what she says. So guess what? They took her to Mount Hood. And in an hour, she was back on the street. So, yes, I agree that the laws need to change. And so that example is of two or three people, several teams over a course of several years, Terry, trying to get this one person off the street or just so that she doesn't die. The last time I saw her, she literally was sleeping naked on top of a pile of garbage next to a Taco Bell. Covered in oil, and that's 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 humane, and, isn't it? That's and, so and, compassionate, right? And that, right, and that has to be okay. We have to say she's deciding to do that, and so we have to honor that. Bullshit. <laughs> I mean, my gosh, if our parents have dementia, no, if they have Alzheimer's, we yeah. can take care of them. Yeah. But we can't take care of our young adult children that have no capacity. They don't have the ability to be autonomous. My son had a 13 year old cognitive level, but yet they want him to have autonomy. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> On another point let's yeah it, take it's, this it's, off it's, a step it, it's it's um yeah i don't know what the it's maddening so i i get it as a peer i can also say that i don't want to be made to do something i don't want to do so i kind of get right. both sides but now that <laughs> i see the other side in, in this outreach believe me the last thing in the world we want to do terry is have someone placed on a hold Oh my God, right. we'll do anything to prevent that. But after 13 months and seven or six or seven years of other teams trying, and eventually doesn't it get to the point where basically our society is saying, you know what, she's, she is going to die. It's not if, it's when, but it was her choice. Right. And I guess we'll pick up the body when she dies. And that'll be that. Um, yeah. And I guess that's just kind of what we're becoming. Are you familiar with James Hawthorne's approach to mental health care in Oregon in, I think it was the early 1900s, late 1800s? No. You know, the Hawthorne Asylum. And I didn't realize this until someone had asked me to go out and do a video for them. on, And I started researching James Hawthorne. And he, his philosophy was he knew there were people that could not be left unattended. 
So the Hawthorne Asylum was built. He funded it. He believed in there were people that needed confinement, therapy, outside, arts, recreation, medication, whatever, you know, whatever it was there. He was very compassionate, very humane. And now in the situation we're in and what you're describing, I feel, you know, it, it's like, okay, what happened to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Portland struck that from my son and from the people I see every day. They condemned him to not only a cruel and inhumane life, but a very cruel and inhumane death. Yes. They took my rights away as a parent. Yep. Absolutely. And it's just, it blows my mind. But let's, let's, let's turn this to something that's something good here, because I was so excited when you told me about this, I had no idea. And I did some research and I'm sure there's some places other than Portland, maybe that are doing this, but I hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it. And Apple, the Apple yeah, store so downtown. It's really cool. And um, so, like I said, our org has different contracts that provide peer support to different organizations. Um, Blanche House, uh, Maybell Clark, um, just uh, a bunch, William Temple, for example. So um, the Apple Corporation reached out to our org and said, um, how we care about the homeless, how can you help? We understand you're peer driven and we're interested in that. So basically um, there's a peer support specialist that is um, you know, at the Apple store and um, you know, working together with the people that we serve on the street, basically. And so, you know, this takes a lot of uh, pressure off of the uh, the Apple Store staff. It takes um, makes hopefully makes staff coming to work a little more comfortable, leaving work late at night, right? Um, stuff like that. But the the best thing is is that um, because of its location in downtown Portland, it's kind of ground zero for for what's going on around that population. And so, yes, I have. Kind of, it's kind of, I went out when it was. During COVID. Um, destroyed. Yeah. I have pictures of that. Yeah. And you were yeah. telling me about its transformation. Yeah. And I I think that <laughs> I saw an article that said downtown Portland is roaring back in terms of I I haven't seen the roar. I, I hear roars of people screaming that are mentally acute. Um, I hear that. I hear the roars of lots of sirens. Right. But um, right. so anyway... This person is at Apple and they're, it's going great. It's so, um, you know, the Portland Business Alliance is obviously not happy with the status quo and rightfully so, you know, they have businesses and it's really hard to do business when someone is using their front door for a toilet or sleeping in it. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't know that it's a, uh, something that could happen in terms of small business, but you know, the idea of working together with the population between bring the business and the person on the street, the peer is the in-between. So the business can go, Hey, can you go see if this guy needs a tent or if you can help him in some way? And then I go help him. Right. And then the customers keep right. coming in and then that person gets help even better. Right. Right. So this is, right. in a way, this is in reach because we don't have to yes. go out. They're there. And so this gives us an opportunity. It gives the person at Apple 
an opportunity to serve people that otherwise wouldn't be able to. So a big thing is to get people document ready. And the first step is usually getting an ID. 99% of those on the straight don't have an ID. So, you know, getting them doc right. ready and then we can go from there. But it's, it's really kind of a cool thing. And I don't, I don't know how it's looking in terms of longevity, but I, I think it's kind of exciting. I've never seen anything like this and, I think it's it's a great opportunity yeah. again for the the corporate world, corporate the man world, and peers yeah. literally on the street. You know, to and I am recording on a Mac, so that makes me happy. You know, <laughs> I <laughs> Apple. I just I, am too, I, I have a love for Apple. I do too. But, you know, I think I may have said this to you the. I'm, I might not want to say, say that, um, you know what this reminds me of, of this, this story with Apple. I think it's just amazing that they're doing that. I mean, it's helping the community. It's helping their store. It's helping bring some business back to downtown Portland, well, but it reminds it. me of, I was the just going to say, was tased. go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. The man that was tased in Gresham the other day that the um, Mr. Nguyen, I think is his name, and he owns the shopping center. And this, uh, Ronnie Amato, yep, is that Ronnie. his name? Yep, yep, yep. The businesses there had been taking care of him for about five years. Exactly. So they're sort of doing what, I mean, in a much more... I guess much more fervent way. They're 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 able to we're able to take care of him better than you know Apple is. Well, not yeah. So Apple at all for what they're doing, but right. they found. Yeah, what balance. can you tell us about that? I was so impressed. Well, and with what the I, owners, the the yeah, owners. but think about it too. Think about the impression that customers that go to that are going to that downtown Apple store and walking into that store. And seeing a peer support specialist helping the population. I mean, to me, that makes me want to go to that store. And it makes me want to buy another iPhone, right? Uh, it, it seems like a win-win Yeah, it wants me to upgrade everyone. all of my computers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know, um, It's like finally someone is showing a little bit of, from outside. I know it's still corporate America, but it's outside of corporate Portland. If, if you kind of under, if that makes for sure. sense. For sure. Yeah. This is worldwide demand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you wouldn't see it at Amazon in my, no. I don't think. No. Um, but Apple, my gosh, to do that. And that's such a beautiful store. And to see the destruction of it after all of the rioting. And I think you were telling me that they have, you thought that they may be taking the barricades and everything down. They're taking them down this week as we speak. They may all be down. Wow. Yeah. And again, I don't know. I don't know. Of, of course, it's just probably coincidental, but maybe it's in conjunction with having that peer support specialist there. You know, they're just trying to be more welcoming and less barriered, right? Yeah. You know, I, a lot of people I know, one of my sons included, he won't go downtown Portland. And a lot of native Oregonians or native 
um, native to Portland, they will not go downtown. And I'm scared to death when I go downtown. I see what's down there. And if they can get part of it to turn around, maybe there is hope at some point. But what I've what I've seen is the parts of downtown they've able they've been able to bring back. In my opinion, what Wheeler is doing, Ted Wheeler, for those of you that don't know, is our or is Portland's mayor. It it almost seems like he's pushing the problem out to the suburbs to make Portland more appealing. And didn't they just open like a Four Seasons or a, some five-star luxury hotel? Yeah, I don't think it's officially open, but it's about to. So it's the Ritz-Carlton. It's 32 stories. Yeah. And and the best part of that, Terry? That just seems to be. So the, the Ritz had that? to it, the Ritz had to tell the city council in order to get permitted to build that monstrosity. We're going to give you so many affordable housing units in our hotel. They made that deal, right? Okay. Guess what was recanted? The hotel took away the affordable. So <laughs> it's perfect, right? I mean, what a <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah. And what the fuck is Portland supposed what to do? Take the building down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my, I mean, the whole thing is just, it's, it's the definition of an, of insanity. It absolutely is. Um, it absolutely is. Yes. We're doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We absolutely are. Or are we, are we expecting a different result? Or, or maybe we're not. We're I loving think, the result, right? They're liking the, to me, it goes back to the inner core, liking the money that's coming in. So let's just keep this rolling. And like I said, these are just my opinions from dealing with this for so long. And the people out there that are struggling to help these poor people are beating their heads against a wall because there is no help. You know, you, you talked about trying to get a hold on this woman at unity. And I'm going to tell you something with myself that, it wasn't that night with Jacob that came to my bath. This was, I think, before that. And I was in a situation that I was kind of um, in a no-win situation. And I was I was tired of the arguing. I was try- tired of the yelling. I was tired of what was going on. It had been like a 12-hour ordeal. And I, I'm thinking, okay, so I know how many Ambien I can take that will knock me out. It won't kill me. So I took the Ambien, not realizing at that point it would put me into a hypnotic state. And I ended up, I, I have told you the reason I have sleeve tattoos is because of self-injury. So that happened that night. I don't remember anything of it. I was taken to Adventist um, and they put me on a psych hold. I had really, really good insurance and they have me on a psych hold. My son, I take to unity. I can't get a psych hold on him. Even though the reports state he's delusional, he's psychotic. He thinks his girlfriend was beheaded by ISIS and OHSU reattached her head. They will not hold him. But 
I do have to say in my situation that the psychiatrist that came, oh my gosh, what an ordeal. Uh, I had to be interviewed by four different people and the psychiatrist that came in, he, the first thing he said was, you don't belong here. Your, your statements have been consistent all the way through. I believe what you were saying. You just wanted peace and quiet. And on the way out of the door, he turned, he said, uh, by the way, the Ambien you took to do what uh, they're saying is lame. So, you know, I kind of, it really, it freaked me out. I was calling my attorney. I didn't think I was going to get out. I was out in about 10 hours, but here my son was out in two hours. He's gone with drainage tubes in his body. They release him to home, i.e. the streets. I was in my journey of homelessness. I was placed on several holds, and after 72 hours, in most cases, I was released out the side door in my gown, with nothing but my gown, onto the street. That's no bullshit. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and so of course they loved you, Terry, because you had good insurance, and so you were income to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to what you were saying, you know, about your son only lasting two hours, he was out in two hours, despite all these things, right? And so as as someone that does direct service, when I talk to people on the street, they're all saying, I'm hearing voices. They're all saying the same exact things. I mean, so it's like, I, it's, as, as as cute as that sounds, what you described, it's mm-hmm. it's normal of the population. Yes. And yeah, absolutely. And so it's just, you're really not any different. And so the vulnerability that we have to look at, like in terms of placing someone even like into Hooper or into a tiny home or safe rest village, I mean, you start with just the basic you know, traumas that typically go along with being homeless but then we have to add, you know, they're they're confined to a wheelchair or they have a colostomy bag or, you know, they're suffering, um, they're escaping from DV. Or, so the acuteness of people that are actually getting inside off the street is titanically high because there are so few options. And so and, and the, 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 the huge bowl of the population is, is similar in terms of these acutenesses. So you then you have to raise the bar. Okay, this person is also this and also this and also pregnant and also this, you know, and so that's finally the person that gets in. Right. And see, okay, I understand drug-induced psychosis. I also understand my son, and I go back to Joshua because that's my personal experience. The minute he was handed to me from the birth mother, I knew there was a problem. And it took us seven years to get him diagnosed. Joshua had, when he died at the age of 28, a 28-year history of problems and being in therapy two to five times a week for years. Yet... Oh, and I had found found one of his journals. And I, I don't know if I told you about this or not. I would bring him home as often as I could. And then he would last about three days and he'd have to leave. I found one of his journals and in part of it, it was very, 
very nicely written. He had his goals. He had everything he wanted to do. And then on the other pages, there was this, this scribbling, hard, heavy scribbling. I knew what that meant. So I asked Joshua, Joshua, I love this journal. Tell me about it. He said, well, these are my goals, mom. This is, you know, they weren't really, they were autistic goals. Someone, uh, <laughs> he was high functioning, but then again, he wasn't. Um, he was, they were the goals of a 13 year old. Yeah. And then I said, that's so awesome, but I don't understand these pages. Mom, those are the voices. And when they come, they talk so fast and they're so loud. I have to write really fast. Mm -hmm. And this was before he had ever had meth. All of his counselors, everyone that he had been through, you know, stage after stage, knew about this journal. They knew it's in his paperwork, paranoid schizophrenia, bipolar, and autism. But they wanted to say to me, it's drug-induced psychosis. So isn't that really just okay. convenient? It's really convenient for them to say that, isn't it? Because then that's the yeah. discharge plan and they're gone. Yeah. Right. That's I asked, I remember asking a couple of doctors. I would get so frustrated and they were going to discharge him when he was clearly having delusions he was wanting to ki kill people he he was not safe one of my biggest fears is that i was going to get a phone call he had harmed someone else mm -hmm. and the doctor said i said he needs to be on a hold he needs a psyche valve i don't want to take his rights away i said really so if he does harm someone while he's in this state you're going to call their parents and tell them because you didn't want to take his rights away their child no longer has rights. They would walk off. No, they I would yeah. never see him again. And my son would be discharged. Yeah. Man, Jeff. <laughs> and to, to, to think, are you a native Oregonian? I am proudly. You so you remember how beautiful Portland was. I oh got here God. about 30 years ago. The drugstore cowboy days. You betcha. It was idyllic. Yeah. That's the and part now it's embarrassing. that I moved to in 1982 after growing up in Eugene because Portland was the big city. And oh my God, it, wow. it was the greatest, it was the greatest city in, I think, the, the country. Um, it, I think it's still pretty amazing. And I, you know, I am very critical sometimes, but I don't mean to be negative. I'm only critical right. because I want to see positive change for those that we serve. Um, exactly. But I say that because I, I do love our city. And if I didn't, do you think I would mm -hmm. do this? You know, um, right. the people that, and it's just not me, it's anyone that does this, this um, very, very challenging work is it, it has to be in your heart and soul. And if it's not, you're not going to last long and you're really not going to be helping um, people very much. Um, so, Well, I think there are two sides to that coin. One is it's your passion, it's your heart and your soul, or it's your pocketbook. I don't think there's really any in between there. 
And I am very cynical after working with everything. But, you know, Portland is still beautiful. I would love to see it come back. I would too. But it's almost as if we have to systematically dismantle Portland and, and start from the bottom up. Certainly the systems of care and its system of government. Um, the system of government is actually being revised um, and so maybe that's a first step. Maybe that's a first positive step. Going back to what you were talking about earlier with the nonprofits, I think in terms of them being an industry versus a cause, I think the number one goal for every nonprofit should be to go out of business. Period. That's ex Yes. Right? Because nonprofits exist right. to fill a need, a human need, a gap. And what a beautiful thing that you could create a nonprofit and fix this gap and then be out of business because there's the, the, the need is gone because you solved it, you know? Yes. Um, but nonprofits. And go on to the next. Yeah. Most, most nonprofits, second or third goal, goal is growth. It has nothing to do with the people they're serving. It's growth. No, it's growth. It's growth. But wow, as, Jeff. Many, as many people say, Terry, the system isn't broken. It's the system we built. <laughs> That's right. That's it's it, it's kind of like big pharma. Um, if people aren't sick. Yeah, we're out of business. How can you sustain? Yeah. How can you sustain? Now, if you don't want to talk about this next part, I'll edit it, everyone. So there may be a jump here, but um, you have some exciting personal use news. Did you want to share any of that? Which you have you have you have a new a new toy. I have a, to help I, with I, your I, burnout. I, I, <laughs> and I'm excited about this. I'm am, very selfishly so excited. About I, I have not been this excited. I think since I was a child at my parents' home, waking up on Christmas morning. So I, I've been a rider my whole life, and um, I've had bikes my whole life. Never a Harley, though. And, yeah, I, I finally bought one a couple of weeks ago. And it's a 2023 um, Heritage Classic Softail, and it's – I love it. <laughs> I, it's amazing it how you can fall in love with a machine. But I, oh, I, yes. I dream about it. It's all I think about. It's all I think about. It's like it's like I've <laughs> become infatuated with this nearly thousand pound chunk of metal, but it doesn't. Well, even... you know what it? It's when I got my motorcycle, I didn't understand the motorcycle culture really until well, I bought my husband a motorcycle first, and I started thinking. I like this because <laughs> at the time we had a lot of kids at home on the motorcycle. There is no cell phone. There's no one calling mom. How do I do this with my eyelashes that drove me crazy? <laughs> mom, where's the ketchup? I could recharge. So this is your, this is your battery, Jeff. And it is totally I was just, <laughs> When you sent me that that message, I was like, "Oh my gosh, we have to ride." 
absolutely. I would so love to. And I, so I'm where you were at. I, I know, I mean, I've been writing, but I've never had a Harley. I know nothing of the culture. Um, but I'm so excited. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be touring. I'm going to do trips and I'm going to do Alaska all over. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But I, what you said, it, so when I'm on a bike, my brain goes click, uh-huh. it turns off, and it's peace. It's zen. Yes. Just do, 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 you know, oh my God, it feels so good. It it's does. And it, it, it helps. It helps to be able to come back and do the job you're doing, which has a really high burnout rate because you're beating your head against the wall all the time. You have to be able to get out and enjoy and not think about anything except the smell of the air, (laughs) the eagles flying overhead, what's around that next corner and just Mm -hmm. enjoy. I am so, I am so excited for you about that. Yeah, I am too. And I, I, like I said, I've gotten bikes before, but I'll tell you, I have never felt this way about a bike. And I know it sounds like I'm talking about a person, but it's really true. I mean, it's like, this is like the love of my life bike. Right, right. My soulmate bike. Right. (laughs) You know, that's how I feel about mine. And I will net, although I'm looking at, and I would like to have an Indian chieftain, there's no way I can get rid of my Harley. There is no way. And I think I've got a heritage too. It's a, it's a 06 heritage soft tail, very customized. And I just, there's just something about getting on it, revving the pipes. It's like, this is the song of my people. <laughs> um, so this last time I was trying to decide between an Indian or a Harley. And I went with uh-huh. the Harley. And I, I'm not that I still wouldn't want an Indian, but I'm really glad I went with the Harley. But you've had one, so I get the, the oh. one for an Indian. They look pretty cool. You know, I've always loved Indians, but my Harley is just, I remember my dad had ridden motorcycles, and I remember calling him after I got my first Harley and saying, um, or asking how long before I like this? <laughs> how, when I was started riding on my own, because I was scared to yeah. death. And he said, 500 miles. I call the next day, dad, how long before I like this? 500 miles, about 500 miles. I thought I could take on the world. It just, it clicked. And it's really, it's very special. And I, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I, so it has kind of been an escape and a way for you to get out of your head too. Right. And you've been doing it for how many years? How long have you been writing? Ah, uh, since 2005 on my own. So it's, it has saved my life. It has saved my sanity and I love long rides. I love just getting on my bike and going and staying at ratty hotels, you know, pulling in at night, chaining up my bike, taking off the next day and just, and you know, 
with bikers, there is that sense of community that we were speaking about earlier with the homeless, that you, there's this community, there's this connection. And that's one thing I really, really love about my motorcycle, that it's brought into my life. That's so cool. So now I have another connection in that <laughs> circle. Absolutely. I'm excited about that. I am too. Absolutely. Well, we've been going to, oh yeah, I'm, I am. It's like, okay, come on, let's have some good days here. And uh, at least right around Mount Hood down into Hood River or something. Oh yeah. I was going to go out today, but I had to do this podcast. <laughs> oh man. You, I totally, I totally would have understood. <laughs> So it's cool. But I would love to. I I want to go up to Timberline. It's one of the first trips I want to do. Um so yeah. Anytime. Oh man, that was one of the that was one of the first trips I did and I got a stress fracture in my knee because oh. my chaps around my knee were too tight. Oh, no. And so I got a stress fracture and ended up with a doctor that was telling me all of this stuff and I can't go into the whole story just because it's not politically correct. And I am in no way politically correct, but I'll have to tell you sometime. All right. You'll tell me. <laughs> Timberline. Yeah, that's that. a deal. That'd be yes, great. Timberline. That sounds good. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Oh, uh, it's taking, totally you know, this time favorite. and taking your great motorcycle weather today, but <laughs> No, it's my this pleasure, awesome. Terry, and I'll tell you that I've never done this before, and there's a reason, and that is because I, I I don't feel comfortable in sharing a lot of personal stuff with a lot of people, but I can tell from your heart and, and what you do and, and how you speak and everything else that you're someone that I respect very highly and greatly, and so it's, it's truly my pleasure, um, and so thank you for giving me a voice, I appreciate because like that. I said, this is the first time I've... I've ever really kind of done anything like this. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. That's that's quite the honor. I mean, I, coming from you, I've got so much respect. I watch, I mean, my gosh, people go and check out the Portland Homeless uh, Facebook page because is that the correct? Yeah, yeah you got it. Yeah, Portland Homeless. Be, I, the work that you do on that page, I, I have several pages and you're outrunning every page that I have up. I mean, you are constantly updating that and I love it. I you think know, I found out about the guy in Gresham from your page. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. And um, everyone, thank you so much. Please go check out Jeff. Sign up for his Facebook page and give him some Facebook love. And thank you so much. Thank you, Terry. Uh-huh. Thanks, guys. We'll see you, Thank you. soon. <laughs> now you can see why I was so excited to have Jeff as my first guest. He is the definition of awesome. He is one of the most incredible people I've come across in this journey. I would love it if you would go check out his Facebook page, Portland Homeless. Also, I will leave all the information in the show notes be below. Links to Jeff's page, what he does, 
all of my social links and we would really appreciate a like and a follow. And if you have any comments, any feedback, please leave it in the comments below. And while you're at it, give us a review. Give Jeff a five-star review. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you very soon. Later.